For as long as I can remember, since childhood even, when I've fallen in love with a book, I've wanted to sit down and talk with the author. Now, I'm doing just that. Welcome to Words with Writers. I'm your host, Jenny L. Weitrip. I'm an award-winning, best-selling author, and I'm talking to authors about the writing craft, the writing life, and the books you love. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Suzanne. I am so happy to welcome you to the podcast and so excited for the opportunity to discuss your book, The Moonlight School, which I thoroughly enjoyed. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. It offers um, such a wonderful story for readers. I am completely confident that readers will fall in love with this story, but it also offers so much for writers as a book to study and analyze because you have um, done such an incredible job. You are just an incredible writer. So you offer a lot for us to learn from through this story and the way you've crafted it. So I look forward to hearing uh, from you as a writer and uh, learning from you as we talk about the book. So I want to introduce you for the three or four people who are not familiar with your work. Uh, you have written, Suzanne Woods Fisher is an award-winning best-selling author who has written more than 30 books with over a million copies sold. That's a milestone. <laughs> Titles include On a Summer Tide and On a Coastal Breeze, as well as The Nantucket Legacy, Amish Beginnings, The Bishop's Family, The Deacon's Family, and the In at Eagle Hill series, among others. She is also the author of several nonfiction books about the Amish, including Amish Peace and Amish Proverbs. And she lives in Northern California. So we are both Northern California gals. So tell us about The Moonlight School. It releases February 2nd. And what was your inspiration? Share that with our listeners. I loved reading how you came up with this idea. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. We met one time at a conference and I've never forgotten. You just have such an, a warmth and effusiveness and mm -hmm. you just have a way of bringing the best out of people, Jimmy. So I write for Ravel Books. That has been my, my primary publisher, which is a little different than some other authors, I've been very fortunate to sort of have a, a home there for now. And every contract I always feel could be the last. So I try to do my best with each one and learn and learn and learn as I go. But the story of the Moonlight Schools came about in such a fun way because who knows where inspiration is? It's everywhere, if you're paying attention. And as I write in the morning, I, and I, I'm a morning writer, early bird writer, I listened to a classical music station and there was this one day in history and it was probably September 5th. And I don't even remember it was a few years ago where the narrator made a comment. I guess you wouldn't call a classical musical guy, a DJ, but the narrator, the host, <laughs> he said on this day in history, in September 5th, 1911, the Moonlight School's grassroots movement began by Cora Wilson Stewart and spread across the country. And that was all. And then he went on to something else. But there was something about that that I just stopped what I was doing. And I Googled Moonlight Schools 
And then I Googled Coral Wilson Stewart. And it was almost like falling in, into like Alice in Wonderland, falling down and down and down because this is a true story. And it's just the most remarkable story. And this is not a spoiler to the novel, which fictionalizes the account, but Cora Wilson Stewart was the first female superintendent for her little town in Eastern Kentucky, Appalachia. And she just had this, she was in charge of, I think, 51 rural schoolhouses and one public schoolhouse. And at the time of that day, Rowan County, where she lived, had an appalling adult illiteracy rates, well over 25%. The national average at that time was only 7.7%. And it was probably much worse than that because this is hills and isolation and Round County's not coal like so much of, of Kentucky. It was lumber, but it, it's quite removed. And the thinking of that day was that people, adults couldn't learn to read. It was, if they missed that window as children, they would lose it forever. And she believed that too. She accepted that until a couple circumstances occurred and that challenged her thinking. So she came up with this idea, had to talk her, her teenage teachers, you know, they were basically just barely out of school themselves. There's a saying that the way you know who was the teacher and who was the students was the teacher had shoes on. Wow. I mean, they, these are like 16, 17 year old, mostly girls, talk them into staying at night after teaching children all day. And they all agreed. And she opened these little schoolhouses on moonlit nights to adults who wanted to learn to read. And they hoped for maybe 100 to 150 people in these 51 schoolhouses. 1,200 people came out of the hills and the hollows to fill those schoolhouses. And in two years, she wiped out adult illiteracy in the county. So that's the basic, the bones of the story. And it's just astonishing. And that's all of us should know this story because... It's ours. It's American history. It's incredible uh, the way you were able to take those factual events and weave in, you know, other stories into that primary story. Uh, you did a fabulous job doing that. And I learned so much, which when I read a novel, if I can learn something along the way, it's just that much better. Uh, I did not, I was not familiar with this story, nor was I familiar with our current statistics on literacy, which was startling. Uh, you created a really neat graphic that um, uh, shows all of that information. And I will... Um, link to that in the show notes for readers and listeners who are interested, but it's such an important issue. And it really opened my eyes as both a writer and a reader to something I have very much taken for granted. So it's an important book in that respect too. How will you, um, how will the issue of literacy factor into your marketing plans for the book? Well, and that's a great comment for writers because how do we how do we take a novel and look for ways to to promote it? And this story in particular, at first I felt like you did, Ginny. Well, what would be 
what would be relevant to today? And so I started looking into today's literacy rates and I was stunned, stunned. I really assumed if, if it was in the 1910 U.S. Census, if literacy across America was, or illiteracy was only 7.7%, logically you'd think, oh, I bet we've almost eradicated it. The opposite, we're yes. at 21% illiteracy in our country, functioning illiteracy. And that means adults who cannot read their medical prescription bottles or the news headlines or just take part in simple things in life. And it doesn't mean they aren't intelligent people. It's just simply, a lot of it is, is of course, the immigration. There's so much immigration, as there always has been. This is what our country's built with. But it is um, really a, a very troubling issue facing our country, and we have so many troubling issues. You know, where do we start? But, but as writers and readers, this maybe we could do something about, even if it's yeah. even if it's just a local, uh, even if it's reading to your neighborhood kids or donating school books to your local school. But I think one of the things that troubles me the most is the chain, the cycle that. When parents don't read well, books are not in the house and children don't read well and, and it's not supported. And then you look at prisons and it's like 85% of the prison population struggles to read past first or second grade. I mean, it's, it is so critically important in a country that like ours to start to address some of these issues. There's a, a phrase I love, each one teach one. And I think that's just such a wonderful way to not feel overwhelmed by these statistics, but to look at, okay, well, what, what can I do? What could I do? I have a little free library out in front of my house, for example. Oh, I love that. I love it. And it's created so much community, people walking down the street, leaving books, children's books, adults' books, all kinds of fiction, nonfiction. It's just available. And now there's four in my town. I live in an unincorporated town, so there's no library. Mm. And all, all of a sudden there are four little free libraries. And it's like, you know, the joy of reading and having and sharing books or, or helping, like I mentioned, donating books to a school or going in and reading, or even the importance of sitting down with a child, your child, your grandchild, what you are doing by reading, you're modeling, you're giving them a sense of of how good this is and how wonderful this is. They're practicing their, their reading skills. So anyway, I'm now really quite a fan. And I love that each one teach one concept. Yes. Yeah. I have friends who actually go to our public library in another town and they are, they um, tutor adults who are from other countries and just to practice. Wow. It's such a simple one hour a week kind of a thing to do. What a difference. Right. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. So when you consider um, the topic, this really is an issue-driven novel. It's historical fiction, but it really is wrapped around this issue of literacy. And as someone who writes mostly issue-driven fiction, it's always um, sort of a balance to want to bring awareness to the issue and then to use it as marketing, you know, uh, material. And so I'm always very careful about how I word that because really what we are doing is bringing attention to something. 
uh, in through our marketing efforts. And um, so have you considered ways that you will market around the issue? So I love that idea because you're right. How can people know if they don't read it? You know, we have to, it's that fine balance of, of wanting to not make this say about it bottom dollars, but it's about really exposure. So this story was planned to release during National Literacy Week. And it's also right in front of Women's History Month, which is another thing. And there's so many little opportunities like that. I think that if you really look and think outside the box and brainstorm with friends and brainstorm with your publisher, you can start to find some of these connections that become jumping off points or talking points or a way to just get a little bit of momentum rolling because it is really hard to get a book out there. It's so hard, especially under COVID, especially bookstores disappearing. It's just, it is just hard, but everybody loves to read and there's still a place for books. And yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I hope that, and I think statistically I've seen recently that, uh, in 2020 and 2021, while we are still at home and fighting a pandemic, uh, book sales have increased. Okay. And I just read just recently uh, that the numbers are up, so more people are reading. And that's a gift of, you know, having to stay at home <laughs> yep. is that, you know, we're Uh, We have a little more time, some of us, on our hands. Uh, Probably moms with kids at home do not. But anyway, so uh, I hope this book will will reach a wider audience uh, just because more people are reading right now. So when you are um, looking for opportunities to market uh, the book, uh, that's part of your research. And I read in your acknowledgments that research is one of your favorite parts of the writing process. This book was research intensive, I would imagine. And uh, reading your acknowledgments was a study for me in what it takes to research historical fiction. So for the writers listening, make sure you read the acknowledgments. (laughs) But share with us your process, um, you know, where do you begin? What does that look like for you? Well, I've done a couple of different historical novels and I, I just love them. I, in fact, in some ways, I think I enjoy them more than contemporary mm-hmm. because you, you have a little bit more of a framework to work with. That's a little harder. I think in contemporary when you've got, some of the technology that's a part of today. I mean, where do you hide a secret in today's world? You know, whereas back in the historical novels, there's there's so many, they didn't have DNA testing. They didn't have, you know, there's so many things that are, were a little bit easier to hide things, to create plots and twists and turns and all. But I think some of the things about historical novels are original sourcing and original research and being there and getting a sense of, what it was like in that time frame. Some suggestions I would make are probably one of the best tools has been the academic community going to 
textbooks, going to professors who have studied these topics. Um, even sometimes, in fact, one of my books about Cora Wilson Stewart was a PhD. So, you know, there's, there's so much information that people are, have studied and done before you, which is great. And almost starting with that, another tip is, um, besides, of course, being there, I remember one time I was writing about this woman, um, Mary, Mary Coffin Starbuck, who was the one of the founding families of Nantucket. And I was at the Nantucket Library, which is a historical association, and they have a vault that goes deep into the earth. And you can apply for papers and to see a lot of the Quaker books that kept the notes of every meeting and all that, meeting notes. And one of the things I had to sign my life away, I had to wear gloves. I couldn't have any cell phone or anything with me. But I was able to hold Mary Coffin Starbucks accounting book in my hand and 400 plus years old. And to see that and what I learned from just, it was really just that's all they had of her was an accounting book because she kept like a store on Nantucket. And so she worked with everybody. She, and I, I started to just see, first of all, the beauty of her handwriting, the, the intelligence, the accuracy. It was all English pounds at that time. She worked with everybody on that island. You know, her influence was amazing. I thought it was interesting with her handwriting because her husband was illiterate. So, interesting. you know, and they had a wonderful marriage. And I, I just feel like there was something that kind of just was a spine tingling moment when I'm holding her, her book, this, you know, sheepskin ancient book, but it just meant so much. So that kind of a original sourcing is what I mean. Another one is going to these little museums that are part of historical places. They have books there that aren't on the market that mm. you're finding all kinds of little tidbits and information and um, seldom read kinds of things, but they give you a whole nother perspective that is, is just so fun. So those are the types of ways to start to almost create the, you know, how would I describe it? You got the bones, which is the story. You're starting to add the flesh and then the skin and all. I used to write for magazines and I think some of that has helped with historical research because you just have to start digging and putting yourself out there and dead ends. And, and then I, I knew I had the story when I found information started overlapping quite a bit, especially a brand new topic. So, um, you know, and even getting used to people not calling you back and having to pursue and, you know, getting, uh, sometimes academics, I think can be a bit, forgive me if any of you are or academics, but sometimes they can really make you feel stupid, <laughs> you know, and getting over that. That's okay. And, and that kind of thing. So. What would you say to the very shy writer who might be reticent to make a phone call, make a connection? Um, have you found that people are willing to talk most of the time? You know, I, I think for the shy writer, I feel as if you're going to have to, you're going to miss something if you don't push. You're going to have to, even if it's, even if you feel, feel stupid, even if you feel clumsy, even if you're tongue tied, you are going to miss something if you don't turn a stone over and 
yeah. you got to try to do it because there's just nothing like it. I remember one time I was writing about um, falconry and I, I happened to interview a woman who was a falconry up in the Santa Rosa area in California. And she made this one comment, one last comment about how a true falconer, it's a trust relationship. You have to let them go to have the falcon come back to you. And that became such a critical part of this story where a father was trying to let his son go and he had to trust. He had to give him the space to go. But I thought I would have missed that. I would have missed, you know. So those those moments are priceless. Yes. and worth pushing yourself. Yeah. It is amazing how often while doing research, some snippet of something Mm -hmm. really will inform the rest of the story that you're writing. And so it's so valuable, um, that kind of inspiration that comes as you're reading and talking to people and learning about the topic. So that's neat. One of the things that I was so amazed by in this book was, well, there there were many things, so I have a hard time choosing, but one of the things that um, both surprised me and amazed me was the way you were able to naturally include the dialect of the area and the time um, in the character's dialogue and balance that so it it wasn't overwhelming. It, it took, you know, a a few lines of dialogue to kind of go, okay, this is what we're doing and and get used to it. How did you, how did you research that dialect and then decide what's too much? What's, what's, you know, too little to give the reader a real flavor of the, the people. Dialect is so tricky. It's hard because I think it can really be annoying to a reader. It can just be tiresome and, you know, and stutter stops and that kind of thing. So it is a hard thing to do. And I think in this story, I have a young woman and there's one other part I wanted to talk about, and we can maybe talk about this later, why I didn't make Cora. She is Cora Wilson Stewart is really the, the central figure, but not necessarily the main figure. Yes. In the story. And I did a reason for that. And we can talk about that later. But I used this young woman who came from Lexington, who's a relative of Cora, who's been asked to come and help her as sort of an admin. And she was a great device to, I don't understand what they're saying. You know, I didn't, I couldn't catch it. I couldn't, she had to sort of learn the accent or get interpretation for it. Um, which I, I sort of liked. It was fun to be able to, in her mind, think, oh, oh, that's what he meant, that kind of thing. So to talk about the dialect of Appalachia, it is so intriguing to learn this because it sounds dumb to us. Mm-hmm. It sounds uneducated. Mm-hmm. And yet it is out of Chaucer's England. I mean, it is, it is Shakespeare's language. It is so intriguing that much of... Um, much of the wording and the choice of words and the music, the, um, the dancing. And, you know, a lot of their culture is, has been so well preserved from when they came over and emigrated and went into these isolated little towns high in the mountains and kept that culture preserved. 
So it's it's fun. That was sort of a fun thing to learn and to realize, wow, we we just make assumptions so quickly, you know, and <laughs> so unfair. But yeah. So I'm I'm glad you didn't feel it was um tiresome. No, not at all. It just and um much like your protagonist, I you know, I, I learned it. And so then it became easier and easier to read, but it was just fascinating to me. So why isn't Cora the primary protagonist? Okay, and this is a a debatable thing, but this is sort of my thinking as a writer that every book needs a love story. Yeah. <laughs> There's almost, I can only think of really like To Kill a Mockingbird was not a romantic story, but it was Gregory Peck. But, you know, it... It is almost every war story, almost everything, there's a love story. Yeah. And because of that, so Cora Wilson-Stewart was probably in her late 30s. We're talking 1911, divorced three times, <sighs> twice to the same man. She had, did not have luck with love. <laughs> it was, and there was a point when I think she decided that her passion was not really going to be men. It was going to be her work. and. And that was what she threw all her energies into and really became the voice of literacy for America. And in a grassroots way, she did not come with government funding. It was all, you know, volunteer. But I think that was, I made a decision that I I really was going to honor who she was and not try to change her, not quite put anything into her life. And someone else could write this whole story and come up with a whole different way of doing it. And it would probably be wonderful, but I think I just wanted Cora to be Cora, just truly who she was. So I interviewed a lot of people who had studied her. One woman who even had her desk, who, you know, knew her rug in the room. There's so many details that were accurate to what Cora's actual office was like at Moorhead State University, which at the time was not Moorhead State. It was normal college, I think. Um, So, it, it was just kind of a, a decision to make. Does that make sense to you as yes. well? Does that resonate? Yes. That got to find a love story. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you have to create a story that is readable and is, you know, that that primary character, in this case, Lucy, you know, you have to create what's going to work for the story you want to tell. And there is, it's, I don't know. Do you call? I, I wouldn't call this specifically historical romance. Maybe it is, but there's definitely romance in it. There's definitely a love story in it, uh, and there's a secondary love story kind of going on in the background, which I just loved. It's been a long time since I've read a book where I have fallen in love with the characters, like I did in this story. Uh, Finley James and Angie, it just, Brother Wyatt, I want to marry Brother Wyatt. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I picture, I'm picturing Johnny Cash, Uh, young Johnny Cash, you know, kind of that. Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah. You just did an incredible job with your characters. How do you come up with, um, how do you come up with characters? How do you create those layered uh, realistic personalities. I love that part. I think yeah. characters 
for me has probably come a little easier. I don't know why. I just even feel when I read scripture, I love the narrative stories. I love trying to see the flaws and the in Moses and the you know the, the great strengths and things like that. And so probably that that it's like a muscle that that works sort of well for me versus other things don't. I mean, I think there's writing is just hard. It's hard, hard yeah. work to take. I mean, you're talking 85,000 words from nothing yeah. and to make pull a reader through to the very end. It's, it's remarkable what, what writers do. Yeah. And there's a place for so many books still to be written, you know, it's, yeah. but yeah. I think to create a character, I really like them having flaws. I really like seeing their insecurities or their weaknesses or their, I love bringing humor into that. Finn, Finn James is he was just so much fun. You know, he just he was just um, he's a, like a sixteen year old boy in this story who thinks he doesn't need education, doesn't need a, this girl who's just crazy for him. You know, he starstruck by Lucy, this woman in, who smells good and looks good. <laughs> and, you know, and he was just so much fun. You know. He, Such a good story. Um, One of the things I want to highlight for writers who are listening, uh, I read The Ark and I read it on my phone. I read the whole thing on my phone. And uh, so there weren't, because it was The Ark, there weren't scene breaks. And so I didn't always know when we were switching to a new character's point of view. But I very quickly realized that we had because you are you did a masterful job with voice, character voice, and making them unique. And that is something that writers can really learn from in reading this book is the way you captured each unique voice, and they were all so different. You knew the character that you were reading. You knew whose POV you were in right away. And that's great. <laughs> That's skills, what that is. <laughs> I don't know how you read it on a phone. That is, <laughs> But I, I do know what you mean. And I, and I think that's a good kind of piece of takeaway for writers to make sure that these are distinct people. They're distinct yes. voices. I remember helping to edit a novel once and every female was the same person <laughs> over and over and over. It was a, a male wrote the book. And we worked on that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's something that does take a lot of work. I'm still working at that. I will continue always working on creating those unique characters. Uh, but that was something that really stood out from a writer's perspective reading your work was you have done a really good job with that. So uh, as I mentioned, we are both California gals, which means we are uh, recording this in January of 2021. We have been uh, dealing with the pandemic. We have been at home more than we have been outside of our homes, especially in California, I think. What has this time um, meant to you as a writer? What do you have takeaways things you've learned, wisdom to share with other writers who might be struggling uh, with the distraction of everything we have going on? Well, you mentioned like we have more time for reading. I actually have been 
trying to learn new things through mm-hmm. what my husband made this great comment about how he feels one of the gifts of this time period of the pandemic is that it sort of has sped things up. So things that were like remote work and everything's really fast forwarded and webinars, for example, are yes. amazing, remarkable. So I was watching one the other day on floral design. It's just very well done and it was so intriguing. And there was this, they actually took a moment and they they created floral arrangement and explained why they placed things where they were. And they said, now the amateur tends to stuff the flowers. (laughs) Like every part of it is stuffed in the arrangement. But the professional knows to allow for negative space because the eye needs a place to rest before it picks up and moves on. Interesting. There was something about that. I listened to it three times. I thought, I never have thought about negative space like that because it sounds so negative, but it's so important. It is the Sabbath. It is the rest time. allowing, Allowing ourselves, I know it's a design principle, but you know, to give yourself time for rest before something wonderful is about to happen, mm-hmm. before we pick up and move on again. Yeah. And I really just have thought about that ever since because it just seems so spiritual, so grounded yes. in what we are needing right now, which is time. You know, just, yes. Yes. So yeah. That's my thought. Wise words. <laughs> It's also a writing principle. You know, when we are in such intensity in a story, as we are in the story we're living right now, we absolutely do need, we need to give our readers that rest. And we certainly are needing it right now. So, yeah. Ginny, I'm so glad you said that because I don't think I realized that that is part of, of the, of an actual plot, you know, Climax one, resolution, mm-hmm. climax two, and then the big one. But you need the resolution. You need the pause yeah. to sort of give your reader a little chance to, to kind of, okay, calm down. We just can't live on the edge <laughs> all the time. No, we can't. And, and we have been living on the edge now for months and months and months. So um, anyway, it was a gift to uh, get away and uh, read the Moonlight School. So thank you for that opportunity. And thank you for your time today. Where can readers and writers find you online? Well, I am, my website has got a contact page, www.suzannewoodsfisher.com. I'm actually probably more on Instagram than Facebook these days, just simply because Facebook feels a little heavy hearted, you know? (laughs) And Instagram's so light and fun and quick, but um, but there's lots of ways to connect. I read my own mail and I try to answer back as quickly. I hope to get back to people within 24 hours. And I really enjoy connecting with, with readers and other writers too. I just feel like it's kind of the best part of the whole author gig. There's just people yeah. I never would have met yeah. that have just been such bright lights in my life and I'm so thankful for them. That's so neat. Well, good. I will um, link to your website, to your social media, um, again, to the graphic that you made, the the chart on uh, literacy. All of that will be in the show notes for people to find you. And um, along with my very strong recommendation for this book. (laughs) 
<laughs> I think I read recently, like that's almost like 90% of why someone reads a book is because they were recommended by someone they trust. Ah, so it means a lot to me, Jenny. Thank you for reading it on your phone, which I don't know if I could have done. <laughs> and I wrote it. You know? Well, it's a fairly big phone. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but I really enjoyed it. So thank you so much for your time and best wishes on this book. And uh, I look forward to the response from readers and seeing those reviews come in from them. So take care and stay well and stay home and read. Thank <laughs> Thanks, Suzanne. Thank you for listening to Words with Writers. For show notes, links, and resources for writers, go to wordsforwriters.net.